Thank you for joining us for Commuter Rail Conversations, a podcast series presented by the Commuter Rail Coalition, where we interview industry innovators, thought leaders, and influencers. The EU has declared 2021 the year of rail as the U.S. prepares to inaugurate President-elect Amtrak Joe Biden. On both sides of the Atlantic, rail is now seen as a critical element of the economic recovery and as the greenest and safest mode, a necessary component to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In this second episode of Commuter Rail Conversations, we're talking with Philippe Citroën and Scott Sharon about changes ahead in the year of rail. Since 2011, Philippe Citroën has led UNIFE, the European Rail Supply Industry Association. UNIFE's members collaborate on common challenges facing the sector and are providing the innovative technology needed to meet the growing demand for sustainable transport. Before joining UNIFE, Philippe served as CEO of Sistra, Chief of Staff at RATP, and began his career as a transport advisor at the EU and the French transport minister. The chairmanship of UNIFE sits with Alstom for the next three years. Representing Alstom is Scott Sharon, a coalition board member and vice president for business and strategy at Alstom North America. Having worked with public agencies and freight railroads in the U.S., Canada, China, and Europe in his 20-year career, Scott brings a worldwide perspective to our conversation. Philippe and Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. I have been looking forward to this conversation, and I am excited to hear about your insights and the outlook you have for the year of rail 2021. Let's get started. Philippe, I'd like to start with you if I can. Okay, yes. How has the European industry been impacted by COVID-19 and the recession, and what initiatives has UNIFE undertaken as a result? Yes, uh, before answering to your question, I would like to thank you for having me in this uh, meeting with you. And it's always uh, good to be with the commuter rail uh, coalition. We know how much you are promoting rail in, in the U.S., and it's uh, very important to have this kind of discussion so with you as we are, have to prepare the post-COVID period, and we have to also to fight climate change uh, together. And answering to your question, I can say that uh, COVID-19 has uh, hit every sector of the economy in Europe and in all the countries who are affected by COVID-19. And uh, it has affected the big members of UNIFE and also the SMEs who have been suffering a lot. In fact, we had to adapt uh, ourselves to public health measures. And we had, you know, uh, strong uh, lockdowns, border closures, because unfortunately, even if uh, we have the European Union, there are still issues at the borders, especially when there are sanitary uh, reasons. And we had to take a lot of social distancing measures, which has complicated the job of our companies. And what we have also discovered is the supply chain disruption, especially when you have to import uh, components for other parts of the world. But what was important is that member states have finally discovered that they had to take uh, flexible measures. And uh, some of our members have been doing quite well during that period, especially the Germans who were able to take uh, strong sanitary measures uh, very quickly. And what is essential for us is, of course, during this period, is to avoid the cancellation of or the postponement of projects. That was the, the most important thing we've been doing in the past month, is how to be sure that the 
public authorities, we continue to invest in rail. And we were a bit lucky because uh, last year, the new chair of the European Commission, Madame van der Leyen, and you know, the Commission is more or less the European government for some kind of activities, uh, took a decision to launch what she called the Green Deal. And for her, the Green Deal is the flagship of the next five years of her mandate. And all the measures which will be taken by the Commission and by the member states should be in the framework of this uh, Green Deal. And that's why in the recovery plan that we are negotiating today, there's issue about uh, having 30% of the investment of the recovery plan will be linked to the Green Deal, which is important. And that's why we are fighting to be sure that there will be investment for rail in this Green Deal. Okay, thank you. I wanted to ask Scott what Alstom has seen as a result of the recession that we're feeling as side effect of COVID-19, the pandemic, in terms of supply chain and work that's been queued up. What are you seeing both in Europe and in North America? Yeah, thank you, Kelly. And, and also uh, really appreciate you know the opportunity to participate with you and Philippe in this podcast. So it's really been quite unprecedented. None of us have really been through a pandemic before. And, you know, we were fortunate, I would say, in reacting very, very quickly. You know, as soon as we saw this starting to hit really in the beginning of March, we put extreme measures in with a primary focus on protecting our people. But it also gave the benefit of securing our sites and enabling us to be able to continue and ramp up our production globally. There were some places hit worse than others. And, you know, we saw those impacts in other regions around the world. But here in North America, we've been quite fortunate to to really not see disruptions and being able to continue to supply for our customers with some delays, but nothing dramatic. You know, and one particular thing that we've done that has really benefited us is as supply chains were shutting down, and when we did, in fact, you know, we did need to have some slowdowns uh, where initially we took a cautious approach and, you know, paused some of our facilities, we did continue to bring in as much material as we could so that when we were able to bring our people back very quickly within a matter of weeks, we had our supply lines all ready to go and catch up on time. So we were fortunate. We are concerned going forward. We're heading into a, um, a second wave. Some people call it a third wave. And we're laser focused on trying to ensure we don't see disruptions heading into this next phase. The numbers are looking quite challenging. And, you know, we'll adapt again with this challenge to protect our people. The thing that we've seen from a customer standpoint is uh, their focus has completely changed, right? You know, prior to the pandemic, you know, the real focus was on ridership experience. How does everybody deal with the surge in demand? You know, rail was really on an upswing. You know, people have been so tired of the congestion and the commutes they've been having to deal with and the congestion at the airports. But now the focus is all about, you know, how do they maintain operations? Uh, How do they continue to do the capital spending that they know they will need on the other side of this pandemic? And how do they continue to execute on the projects that they have ongoing today? You know, there's the one silver lining out of this, if you will, is it's freed up track time for a lot of our customers. And, And so their infrastructure projects that they have they're finding huge productivity in that and actually finding savings where projects are coming in at below cost because they have more access and they don't need to work in overtime hours. So just the adaptability that we're all going to have to be able to act in this moment and do the right thing for our people and planning for the futures is what we're trying to do cooperatively with our customer. But it's new territory for all of us. It certainly is. Staying on the topic of COVID-19 and the impacts 
Philippe, if you wouldn't mind, describe the landscape for the railway sector as we're about to turn the calendar to 2021, which has been named the EU year of rail. How is the pandemic going to impact that? And I think we'll return in a bit to the recovery investment, but if you wouldn't mind. First of all, I would like to say that uh, as we are going through our second wave in Europe, we have seen a, a huge decrease in ridership for the whole uh, rail sector, but also for public transport. But uh, fortunately, for freight, uh, things have been uh, continuing to be quite good because freight continues its activity even during the the first lockdown. And uh, this is certainly one of the things that we have to mention. But I think that it didn't happen in the US, but also for the image of the rail sector, what happened during the, the first wave was extremely interesting because you had trains who were transporting people who had the COVID from the patients who were transported to facilities in other regions. So you had some TGVs going from Strasbourg to southern part of France, transporting people who had the disease. It's interesting to see the role of rail can also be very useful in that kind of crisis. The second thing which is also important to know is that the government were a bit forced to take some specific measures. And in Europe, we have a system when the, it's the case in other parts of the world, the railway undertakings have to pay uh, track access charges to the infrastructure managers and the infrastructure managers got the authorization by the member states and by the Europe Commission to have the same when they lower the track access charges for the railway undertaking. So it improved a little bit the economic situation of the railway undertaking. So a lot of measures have been taken at the level of the EU and the member state to allow the rail sector to continue to survive. But uh, today, for example, you have to know that 70% of the high-speed train in France has been cancelled. As Scott said, it it has never happened even when it had a big crisis in 2008. So the pandemic is creating a new world. But as uh, people consider that the climate change topics will be for sure in the future one of the most sensitive topics, we can be optimistic about the fact that little by little the situation will become normal. Even if with the teleworking system, things can change as well because people now are changing their mode of living and they don't want to live in the center of the cities or they want to live in the suburbs. A lot of things can change. As far as the year of rail mentioned, to be honest, it was not completely expected that the year of rail would be 2021, but it was a political decision taken by the EU institution. And we are quite happy because it means that during the 2021, Despite the crisis that we are facing, it would be possible to tell the population, look, uh, of course, we had the COVID-19 crisis, but it's absolutely essential for you to come back to and to use the trains because uh, for climate change, it's absolutely essential. And uh, I think that the fact that the European Green Deal continues to be at the heart of the political message given by the Commission is something extremely uh, positive. And we are quite optimistic that things will come back soon. But the fact is that the most important thing for us is to be sure that there will not be cancellation and postponement of projects. And for the time being, from what we hear from UNIFE members, the situation is not bad. But let's see what happens. But I think our members, even if they had to close their factories during the first lockdown, that's not the situation. They still have a good backlog. And that's the very good thing for our UNIFE members. 
Scott, do you want to jump in here? How does it look for Alstom and any thoughts on recovery in the U.S. given the shifting political environment? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, uh, you know, it brings a smile to my face when I hear, you know, any region of the world wants to declare a year of rail. It's a very foreign concept in North America. But I'll tell you, it's interesting. We follow very closely freight car loadings. The freight customers are very important customers for us, but it's also an indication of the overall health of the economy. You know, in the most recent data that came out just earlier this week shows that we're actually above weekly car loadings for this period of time, same week in 2019. We crossed above that line a couple of weeks ago, and the slope is continuing to increase. So, you know, there's a lot of talk out there where people look at the stock market versus what they think the real economy is, and it's talk about a disconnect. But it's interesting. If you look at car loadings as an early indicator, it will tell you that the economy is coming back. And I think that's good for all of us. In terms of what that means for Alstom and what that means for us, this pandemic's not going to last forever. I read an article recently. They were talking about this concept of chronocentrism, right? We think about this particular moment in time as being the most important, right? Because we're in it, we're feeling it. But you know, the message was we've been here before, right? If you go back and you look at the pandemic of 1918, there's a lot of writing out there that the roaring 20s, right? This famous time of economic recovery and socialization and vibrant cities and people coming together, that it was a reaction to coming out of the pandemic of 1918. When people were so isolated and so far apart, they craved those social connections. They crave that being together again. We're going to be back in the same position. It doesn't feel that way now, but we will be. And when we are again, the same frustration with congestion, the same traffic issues we had, the same struggle that we had with mobility because we're seeing increasingly dense it had been cities, but we're seeing more of that happening in the suburbs. You know, if there's one thing that we've learned from this moment in time, whether it be due to the pandemic or even when people look at the recent presidential election and, you know, where are some of the more important communities in America? It's the suburbs. If it's the year of rail in Europe, I'll tell you it's the year of suburbs in the United States. And as a result, we need to start thinking about do we have the right infrastructure? Do we have the right tools available to help our people be mobile and get around? And so, you know, as we look forward into the next administration in the U.S., as we look forward to the recovery globally, I think we all need to be really careful that we take this as an opportunity to deploy capital and the stimulus that will come from this recovery in the right way. I look back to the 2008 financial crisis. And in the U.S., we picked winners and losers. We invested a lot of money to recover and bail out the automotive industry. It was the right thing to do, right? We needed to protect those jobs. We needed to have that industry come back. But we also invested a lot of money to recover and bail out the airlines. And that bailout went into investment that served a lot of regional airports and a lot of short-haul flights that could have been better served by better modes of transportation, including rail. And so for me, the thing that I'm most focused on and that I really hope the policymakers are really thinking about is we have this really unique moment in time where governments around the world are going to be deploying massive amounts of capital. The most important thing we can do is allocate that capital in a smart, intelligent way. And let's make sure we take the studies, we take the scholarship, we take the leadership that Philippe and Unife have done all around the world, other organizations have done around the world and benefit from their knowledge and have a fact-based, data-driven capital investment policy that is multimodal and that rail is one of the important pieces that in the past, at least in the U.S., has been neglected, but we gave it its due going forward. So let's talk about city pairs here for a second and substituting some of the flights that come in and out of regional airports 
with a focus on rail. John Bercari, last week, I believe it was, in speaking to Ashdo, suggested that that would be an initiative of the Biden administration. City pairs between four and 500 miles apart would be better served by an investment in rail than air. And I know in France, Philippe, that the recovery there has focused Air France's attention away from shorter haul flights and instead made the conditioned stimulus money that went to the airline was specific to cutting some of those short haul flights and instead focusing on the longer domestic so that rail could serve those and take over that market. Let's discuss that. Scott, how do you project that happening in the U.S.? And Philippe, what impact has that had beyond just France? So the U.S. is really interesting. If you look at the D.C. to New York route in particular, right, there used to be something called the shuttle that would fly out of former National Airport, now Reagan Airport, where every half hour there was a flight going each way. And at the time, the you know, former U.S. Air, uh, I think Delta had one as well, they would have three planes. They would have one plane at the gate and three planes standing on standby because they wanted anybody who shut up to be able to get onto the plane. You didn't really need a reservation. And it was just this constant shuttle back and forth. When Amtrak launched the Acela service, I don't know how long it took. It wasn't very long. The shuttle doesn't exist anymore. And Amtrak took more than 90% of that share. And the reason is Amtrak was following an example that's been proven all around the world, right? For distances between three and 500 miles, and there's more than a dozen examples around the world, in every instance, inner city rail, high-speed rail has become the predominant mode of transportation to the share of 80 to 90% plus. It has been proven to be the best economic investment with the greatest return on investment. And there's always this talk about rail doesn't pay for itself and rail has to be subsidized. Look, roads are subsidized. Airports are subsidized. Everything we do when it comes to transportation and capital infrastructure and investment like this that's going to last for 30, 40, 50 years or longer, it's expensive to do, but you amortize it over decades. It looks expensive up front. But the benefits that it gives you far outweigh what the upfront costs are. And I like to use the expression, people vote with their feet. If you have two competing services, whether it be a short-haul airline or you have a high-speed train and if people are choosing to go with the train, the people are right and politicians that are against it or the stakeholders that are against it, quite frankly, they're wrong. We need to be smart. Rail doesn't fit every situation, just like car or airplane doesn't fit every situation. But the ones that do and the ones that are proven to work, we should be investing in. There's a really interesting set of plans out by different organizations. Amtrak has been really pushing lately this idea of city pairs. We need to take it seriously. We need to give it more thought. And the data proves it. You invest in the right city pairs, people will come, the revenue will flow, and we'll have a much better traveling experience for the public than we have in the U.S. You know, Philippe, I know you and many of your members globally have been enjoying for decades, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up soon. Well, on my side, I can just say that we agree with what Scott is saying, but we have already examples in Europe, and I can give you a very 
good example of what happened recently with the Paris-Bordeaux line, which was inaugurated two years ago, the high-speed line, 600 kilometers, takes two hours from Paris to Bordeaux. There was a shuttle, as in, uh, in the US, there was in Washington DC, there was a, a flight every half an hour. Now, of course, little by little, you get 60 or 70 percent of the ridership for trains. And if you take the example of Paris, Brussels, 320 kilometers, one hour and 21 minutes to go from Paris to Brussels. And then uh, the market share for rail is 100%. Uh, so this is a kind of good example that shows that really you can attract the people and they see there's no more reason to go by plane from this uh, specific part. It is true that the government is now saying that if we give some uh, bailout or support to uh, some of the aviation airlines who are going through difficulties, I don't want to uh, to say anything against them because they are facing major challenges and the situation is very complicated for them. That's what I want to say. But it is true that the government is saying now you have to avoid to fly from one place to the other, two city pairs for 300 and 400 kilometers. It has been done by, it can be operated by the rail sector. We have also the very good example. And uh, Scott, you know that your company, Alstom, has been always also very present in the Spanish market is the Barcelona market. Madrid, which is also showing a 60 to 70 percent share for the rail sector, which is a very good thing. So globally speaking, I think this it shows that it works. It goes in the direction of the climate change. And you also change it. And this is an example I can give, is that when you have this kind of high-speed line, you change the geography of the region because immediately the people decide to live in these parts because it takes only one or two hours. From Paris to Bordeaux, it's two hours. So a lot of people now I commuting in a way between Paris and Bordeaux because they know that it's very easy to go to from one city to the other. But also you have cities which were a bit lost because they didn't have a good future. Thanks to the high-speed line, it has changed completely the geography, the economy. And that is also very important for us. And as we are entering the climate change period, because we are really speaking about this, and um, I don't want to interfere in what's happening in the US, but of course we... We would be very happy if the U.S. could re-enter in Paris Agreement on climate change. That would be a fantastic news. I think the topics would be, even after the pandemic, even with things would change for sure in the life of the people, but those topics of having a real rail network implemented in our countries would be continuing to be on the front line. And this is very important to support these ideas. Philippe, that's a really interesting point you raise about changing the geography of a country. The, the thing that I find fascinating, right? So I'll, I'll go to, you know, our, our headquarters just outside of Paris. And, you know, some of my colleagues live at a distance from our office that would never be commutable in the U.S. And the reason they do it is they're able to hop on a high-speed train and cover 70, 100 miles in an hour of travel distance. And as a result, you end up having these very vibrant suburbs and even near rural communities where people are able to have the amenities in their personal life that they want to have, but be able to benefit from the economic center and concentration of activity in cities. And they don't need to sacrifice one for the other. You know, and it's maybe a bit of an extreme example. I was having a conversation with, you know, one of our employees who, you know, he actually builds trains. He's been with Alstom now for you know, more than 20 years. He's actually a third generation employee that's, that's worked at the factory there. It's the old, uh, 
you know, Pennsylvania and Erie Railroad Depot. And what he shared with me, and I, I wasn't even aware of this, you know, before the consolidation of the rail industry that, you know, started happening back in the 80s, there used to be passenger service where you would take a freight train or a freight company at the time that was offering passenger service from Hornell, New York, on a trip into New York City. So he and his dad could go watch a Yankees game. The idea of a rural community like Cornell, right, a couple times a year, a few times a year, being able to get on a train with father and son, family together, going to visit family in a city, mm-hmm. being able to just go catch a ball game like that, right? it connects our country in a way that we're not connected today. And I always hear this talk about, well, rail benefits cities or rail benefits large urban organizations. What I would tell you is it actually ties the country together in a way that we can't be tied together by bus or by plane or by car. You know, and incrementally starting to connect these city pairs, incrementally starting to connect communities by rail into other communities, it does. It changes the fabric and it changes the connection in your country. We agree with what you said, but you don't have to convince me. So we turn to the topic of the EU Green New Deal and the Paris Accords and the future for the U.S. and Europe in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Well, we have already mentioned those specific points on our side. Of course, the objective for Europe, it would be the same, I suppose, for the US, is to have a climate neutrality by 2050. And on our side, as we are in the transport sector, is increasing, globally speaking, the CO2 emissions, if you look at what happened in the past 20 except for the rail sector, where there's been almost a very small increase of CO2 emissions. So, on our side, we have to continue to be uh, at the front line of the decarbonization. And it is important to, to show that we are continuing to make our efforts to increase the decarbonization of our sector. And we have to do it through research and innovation. So that's why we hope that in the recovery plan, there will be money for the research and innovation of our sector. And maybe I, I can mention, maybe this is an opportunity to mention, this big research program called Shift to Rail, which is a joint undertaking, which is it's interesting, especially in a country like yours, because it's a PPP where the uh, private companies like uh, Alstom or all the other big uh, players are putting 50% of money of the project. It's, uh, the, it's an investment in kind. And on the other side, the EU institutions are putting 50% of the money in cash. And uh, both uh, organizations, the industry and the EU institutions are working together to build a program. And now uh, we are working on a program which is called European Rail Joint Undertaking. And it's the, the second program that we are launching during this uh, Green Deal period. And this is very important because this decarbonization has to go together with digitalization. And we consider that for us, the future of rail, if we want to be shown as an innovative sector, will be done with massive digitalization, with a shift to automation, and with the arrival of autonomous trains. So maybe all those topics might be a bit weird for the US, but I think this is where we are going to work together at the level of industry and all our members are also being quite present in the US market. But um, 
I always pass the message that, uh, of course, on those topics, we, we can also work with the uh, US companies, with the universities, the research centers. And that is, uh, I know that the executive director of Shift to Rail, which is the name of this uh, PPP, came to the US uh, several times uh, at the TRB meeting, for example, and he's quite open to continue the discussion. But on our side, this is absolutely essential to continue to innovate and to show that uh, we are the heart of the research and, and of digitalization and of decarbonization. So, so there are, you see, big challenges for us. And uh, we are doing that, of course, with companies like Alstom or their colleagues who are in Unife. It is a good way to, to be part of the future of the industry because uh, we have to be aware that competitors are also in the car industry, in the aviation sector, in other sectors. And we have to show that we continue to invest in research and innovation. That is very important for us. Scott, would you mind bridging that back to the U.S.? I think you're probably well enough aware of what Alstom initiatives are taking place in Europe and what the environment here is in the U.S. When you say the words Green New Deal, it's become a bit of a lightning rod. But yet under the Biden administration, it looks like we will return to the Paris Accords. So help me understand what you see the future is. Yeah, so, you know, Kellyanne, I think we need to be really careful with the language that we use in this discussion. You know, when I think Green New Deal, right, uh, if, you know, if you go to Washington and, uh, you know, you talk with one side of the aisle, they'll talk about Green New Deal and they'll talk about sustainable. If you go and you talk with the other side of the aisle, um, they'll talk about resiliency of infrastructure. So, Everybody sees the need to have infrastructure, whether it's transportation, whether it's energy infrastructure, regardless of what it is, that is resilient, whether that be against threat of, you know, foreign governments, you know, controlling, uh, you know, the, the vital supplies that we need in order to be able to run our country whether it's threat of natural disasters, you know, jeopardizing and impacting our, uh, our infrastructure, whether it's just weather. And if you think about rail versus road versus aviation, and you think about the energy it consumes, whether it's, you know, petrochemicals, whether it's electricity, whether it's hydrogen, rail is integral to resiliency and rail is integral to green and environmental. So both sides are served. So for me, I like to take that off the table. I just choose which words I I use when I speak with people. But the most important thing is to everybody is job creation. And, you know, when I look at the current debates happening in the U.S. today and the challenges that are today, A lot of it is due to the fact that as a country, we're struggling with figuring out how do we create the next massive wave of job creation, right? I mean, you can look at huge macro trends and you can look at there used to be agrarian economies and then there were, you know, industrial economies and then we moved into a service economy. Well, what's our next phase? And what I would argue is that due to the technologies that are available out there and the fact that we can now invest in a different way to make our country both more resilient and more green, but at the same time, creating massive jobs. And again, everywhere, right? I mean, if you're putting in green power generation infrastructure, or if you're laying new rail lines between new cities, 
you're creating jobs and communities across the country. And I think everybody can get behind that. And so for me, regardless of where you are in your political affiliation or your ideology, these programs, these investments that are being talked about benefit everyone. And so we need to get beyond the language and we need to get beyond the, quite frankly, what I would call it a dearth in leadership among some pockets of our country. And it's not universal. There's a lot of really good, strong leaders out there. Again, back to my message of we're about to have massive stimulus and massive capital allocation. Let's do it in the right way. And again, it's not just Raul and Philippe. I completely agree with the comments you made before. You know, our colleagues in the aviation industry, our colleagues in the automotive industry, our, our colleagues in anything related to transportation or hospitality, you know, all these industries are suffering. And we'll take care of everyone. But let's make sure we're investing in a smart way, a sustainable way, a green way, a resilient way, and we'll create jobs across the board and have the infrastructure we need going forward. I can add something to what Scott said is that, of course, the job creation is one of the most important thing. And we're very happy also to have big, uh, important members in UFA, but also SMEs because SMEs are really uh, uh, small and medium enterprise are really creating a lot of jobs. But it's also important that there's what the, the skill, I suppose it's the same in the US, this kind of skill shortage. And on our side, the UFA and some of its members are helping this process with our hop on for our planet campaign which we launched uh, recently and campaign aims to to attract our colleagues to ensure the skills are there to get uh, the work done and this is a very important campaign because uh, what we saw in the past that the young people were more attracted by other sectors and you can see Sometimes engineers who prefer to go in the bank or fund because they will get much more money there. But it's true that there is a coming very important to attract those young people and also to reskill or upskill uh, the people who are in the companies. Because, for example, when you suddenly decide in our railway undertaking that all the people will have to have a iPad at work on an iPad, and then uh, even when they are in charge of maintenance topic, this is a big change for the people, and you have to tr make a lot of training. So this uh, Hop On for Our Planet campaign uh, was quite uh, successful. It's uh, the way you can have a look at the, the website, and this is also the kind of thing that should be done all over the world because we need to attract young people, young engineers in our sector, and that's very important because in the next future, of course, hopefully there will be a lot of capital investment for rail all over the world. Yeah, Philippe, you're touching on a really important point that uh, I don't think it's enough airtime. You know, if you look at a typical project, you're going to need highly skilled engineers. You're going to need, I'll call them skilled positions, managerial positions, project managers, supply chain people. And you're going to need people that are skilled manufacturing workers. Uh, you, you run the socioeconomic gamut and skill set from end to end when you talk about these infrastructure projects. Whereas if you look at some other industries, that's not the case, right? And so, you know, and it's not just rail, it's really any industrial activity, but rail is a perfect example of it, where when you invest a dollar into rail build-out and rail development, that dollar is covering a broad swath of the working class, whether it's PhD engineer, or whether it's skilled manufacturing worker on the shop floor, everybody benefits. The other thing that's really interesting is I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues um, at a different company. They do a fantastic job 
of bringing in the next generation of employees and training them and retaining them. And, you know, I was talking with him about it and he shared something with me that was really powerful, which is, you know, when he brings people in, he really works with mentoring them, really helps them start thinking about their future and the security of their future, right? And in this time, everybody, you know, is concerned about security of their jobs, right? You don't think about it when you're, you know, you know, coming out of high school or coming out of college, you know, the decision I'm making today or the industry that I'm going into today, how does that affect me 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? There's a security in these industries. And if you develop the skills, if you're an engineer that can design a, a train, that can design a railway signaling system, that can design a, an entire network, you're going to have a career for life and a good and rich, rewarding career. I, we just did a, uh, a survey inside of Alstom. And uh, globally, we had a 94% record of people identifying themselves as proud of working for Alstom which you know, I was really pleasantly surprised to see. Not totally surprised, but pleased to see it that high. It was actually even a bit higher in the US. You know, There's a pride that comes with building something. And then when it's done, being able to actually walk by it, to ride it, to see it, to know that it's going to be left to generations mm-hmm. beyond you. You know, and just it, it doesn't exist in a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. And you know, our ability to increase visibility help people understand its relevance, help people understand the security and resiliency of it over time and attracting young people into these industries so that they can have those jobs and they can have that security. I think it's something we don't talk about enough and we need to make more visible. But if you have time, have a look at this uh, other website, Hop on Rail, and you'll see it's very interesting and you can have examples of young people who are extremely proud to work in the rail sector. My next question for Philippe is about the world market study that UNIFE produces every year. Every two years. Every two, two years. years, pardon two me. Years, yes. it's, a, <laughs> it's a very complicated exercise that the consultant has to make, but it's every two years. It's for you. Usually we, we show it during in a trance. That's right. So, yeah. Okay. So tell me what this most recent issue uh, revealed. Well, the eighth edition of the study, which was made by um, Lamberger, was this time uh, different because we had to move fast to see how COVID-19 has changed the look for the next uh, 10 years. So that was a very complicated uh, exercise. And we had to see if the projects were postponed or uh, or suspended. Or, uh, so, so it was not very easy. And we have to go to all the world. So there are usually 65 countries where uh, the study. What we understood from the study is that despite COVID, the rail will continue to grow as well looks uh, to confront climate change and look for transport solutions. So there was a kind of optimistic view of the future. And right now it looks like it will either be a U or a V-shaped curve, but it's still at, at that time, we were not expecting to have a strong second wave. So, but globally speaking, there is some kind of optimistic views after the study was made, saying that there will be investments in the future. There's this issue of the climate change. So uh, I think the study, which is available, is showing some kind of positive outlook for our sector. The only thing that I would like to add is that there's an issue which is a bit uh, sensitive. It's about the lack of accessibility in some key markets, especially in Asia. 
where uh, foreign companies, uh, UNIFE members, are facing uh, increasing barriers to entry, while Asian state-owned enterprises are entering into our market and in the, I mentioned the EU market, often aided by unfair subsidies at the same time. So um, this is a message I would like to pass. Maybe uh, together with the US, we could have a common position on market accessibility and on uh, level playing field. This is, of course, uh, very sensitive and we have to work on this. And it would be good if we could work on this with the US rail stakeholders. But globally speaking, we think that there are no continents where uh, there are not positive outlooks, even if there will be everywhere a, a slowdown. But there's still a lot of need for investments for rail uh, all over the world. And this study is showing that, well, in the next 10 years, things will continue to improve just once the COVID is over. If Hopefully, it will be the case uh, quite quickly. But globally speaking, the study is showing quite good uh, figures for our sector. That's encouraging. Scott, if I could just ask you to jump in on the topic of lack of accessibility in some key markets. What jumps to mind is the controversy that came out earlier this year about the Chinese rail car manufacturer operating in the U.S. bidding on projects. And I think it got attention when they were bidding on work for the Washington Metro. And concern was that you've got all these folks riding Metro who are getting off at the Pentagon and have their personal phones with them. And what kind of security concerns might go hand in hand with the Chinese producing a rail car for the DC market? You want to jump in on that? Sure. Sure. I mean, look, there's not much for me to say. I have the utmost confidence in U.S. national security personnel and Department of Homeland Security and you know their judgment uh, and their ability to make the right calls and uh, and do the right things to to, to keep uh, you know the american public safe and you know if, if they're seeing something you know i think we need to take it seriously and we need to follow their lead what i will say though about sort of access and you know markets is you know for me it's pretty simple right just follow the law you know, I, I believe in open markets. Um, I, I believe in fair and open trade and competition. And, you know, I have no issue if any company from anywhere on the world wants to participate in global markets, provided they, they play by the law and they do what they're supposed to do. Would I like, you know, certain markets to be more open, um, you know, outside of the U.S. so that American companies had a fair shake to be able to participate in them? While the U.S. is completely open to, to everybody, yes, uh, I'm not going to solve that at my level, and I'll, I'll let our, uh, you know, elected leaders and policymakers take on that challenge. But what I think the U.S. has done that is really smart and is a good policy is, is what we build around Buy America. You know, there's a wisdom in if you're going to spend public dollars, use those dollars to create jobs and drive economic activity in your country. And, you know, with the wisdom that the DOT has had is they've increased it now to 70%. And, you know, the concept is if you're awarded a contract where you're going to benefit from the largesse of the U.S. government, because the U.S. government participates in almost every procurement with providing funds, 
and look in the reality is uh, even when you know uh, a particular agency may choose to use what they call their own funds or state funds and not federal funds the whole system itself is reliant on the federal contribution right and wouldn't be in its existence if if there wasn't a federal piece to it so this wisdom of you know american job creation tied to that investment i think is is a really good one and, you know, again, if anybody's coming in and they want to play in the market and they follow that role, so be it. I think it's great. You know, but I think there's other policy things we need to look at in the market. Philippe, I see the data coming out of Europe in cost per mile or cost per kilometer to build rail infrastructure. And then I look at the, you know, the similar data for the U.S. market. And it's troubling. We are far more expensive. There's lots of reasons for it. There's been lots of discussion about it. I do think it warrants more discussion. And again, as we're getting to move into a phase where we're hopefully going to deploy a lot of capital in the rail industry, let's make sure we're deploying it in the most efficient way possible so it goes as far as possible. And we really only need to look north to the border in Canada in what's going on there. You know, the Canadian model is very different than the US model right now. The Canadians have taken an approach where they've identified infrastructure build out as being a way to re-stimulate their economy. And you have these infrastructure programs, sometimes they're public-private partnerships, sometimes they're being done as a turnkey system. The really only difference being you know, how the money comes in, not necessarily the structure of the actual implementation of the project itself. But what the Canadians are doing and what a lot of countries all around the world have been doing for more than a decade now is this concept of let's build the entire system, right? Don't just look at the train and the signaling, and the electrification, and the civil, and the communications, all as separate pieces that get bid out to separate companies. And then someone is stuck figuring out how to make them all work together. It's like building your house, right? You know, if, uh, if you don't have somebody as a general contractor watching all the different pieces, stuff doesn't fit together, and it ends up costing you 20 or 30% more than you originally planned. Whereas if you have somebody that owns delivering the whole system to a fixed time, to a fixed budget, and if they don't, there's penalties to it, they figure it out, right? And they don't pass the problem to the city or to the transit agency or whoever else holds the bag today. So as long as people follow the rules, as long as we as a country look at a way to do stuff efficiently, as long as we look at models that exist elsewhere in the world, and, and Philippe, I know you guys at UNFA follow this all the time and have a lot of good scholarship on it and a lot of good best practices that we can leverage, we'll be okay as an industry and um, we'll make sure we're investing wisely. I don't think I can add a lot of things. So going back on this issue of accessibility, the most important thing is to have this is the world used in Brussels, the level playing field, and to be sure that it's fair between the two countries. If they can invest, if they can win contracts in Europe, they must respect some rules. There's something where UNIFE has been quite active. It's about the tendering process. It's pushing the idea of having a, what we call a most economic advantageous tender, the meet principle where you, 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 instead of just taking a decision on the basis of price, we say to the tendering authorities, look, don't forget the issues of life cycle cost, the issues of sustainability, the issues of the quality of the material, just to be able not to have only a decision taken on the basis of cost. That is also important. And it's it's an idea which is now getting more and more important. And uh, maybe this is a kind of thing where it could be some exchange of views between the US and Europe to work better on these topics of the tenders and to see how things 
will be organized through a tender. And, and through the tenders, you already start the project because that's the best thing we have to use. And, and the last thing I would like to say that uh, when we launched uh, Shift for Rail uh, one uh, four years ago, the main, uh, let's say, motto it was to it was uh, how can we increase capacity for in the rail sector? How we can increase uh, reliability? And the third point is about the uh, reduction of the life cycle costs, which is also important for us. But I think this is something which is shared between the U.S. companies and the European companies. Yeah, Philippe, that last point, life cycle cost, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's overlooked in the U.S. today. You know, I, I would say uh, we're all looking for the best deal, right? You know, if we're shopping for ourselves, we'll go on the internet and we'll scour every place we can and we'll, and we'll look for the absolute best deal. And um, it's the same thing with our transit agencies, right? They're always looking for the best deal. Mm-hmm. and what they're not always looking at is separating initial acquisition cost from total life cycle cost. And it gets mm-hmm. back to policy again. You know, the buckets of money come from two different places. They oh. get a bucket of money from certain sources for the upfront capital spending, and they get a different bucket of money for the ongoing operating expenses. And very often, and I'll tell you, in, in most of the procurements we see, they're always chasing lowest upfront capital cost. And I always like to say, you can get something cheap. You can get something with quality, or you can get something fast. You can never get all three. If you're lucky, you get two out of the three. And this dynamic has been created in the U.S. from a procurement standpoint, where our transit agencies are chasing all three, only on the capital piece, and they don't think about the long-term cost. And we're starting to see some procurements that do evaluate and look at long-term cost. One of the benefits of these turnkey systems that I talked about is in addition to the upfront capital investment piece, there's also an operations and maintenance piece associated with it where the winning bidders are accountable for the ongoing operation and maintenance costs, as well as the availability of the system, right? Because again, another thing, delivering an asset to somebody that's not available doesn't do anybody any good. Mm-hmm. Um, delivering somebody an asset that was cheap up front, but you have huge maintenance costs and you're constantly fixing all the time because it wasn't a very good quality, that's no good. None of us would buy like that for ourselves personally. Yet we can have a system structurally that's set up around a lot of procurements that drive that behavior. And it's not because our customers don't want to do the right thing. They're chronically underfunded. And the way the procurement rules are often set up forces them into that behavior. So again, I think we have this unique moment in time where we can look at what we know works, what we know causes challenges for the whole industry. And that total lifecycle piece, Philippe, I think you're really right, is a really an important dimension and element for us to look at to make sure that we're able to deliver good, long-term, sustainable best value solutions to our customers in the riding public, instead of constantly forcing our customers to make suboptimal solutions, just based on the, the limited available money that they have that they're being given, because quite frankly, they need to receive more. I think we fully agree on this uh, specific point. Well, gentlemen, we have come to the end of our hour. I wanted to give both of you an opportunity to follow up with any additional comments, anything that we missed that we should talk about today. Well, on my side, I think we talk about a lot of things. And uh, thank you very much, Kylian. Uh, I was very happy to be with Scott uh, discussing on those uh, specific points. Yeah, no, Kellyanne, this was great. I mean, the only thing that I just share, you know, I, I'm a bit of a 
policy wonk when it comes to rail. And, you know, one thing that I always like to you know sort of think about and share with people is in the U.S. in the 1970s, it was the decade of adding new metro systems. You know, you can look at the dates that they went into service and there was a huge chunk that, that were added. The 80s were the decade of adding commuter rail systems with deregulation that happened and uh, the establishment of commuter rail systems. And then 90s were the decade of light rail systems starting to take off. And if you look, every single rail system that has been invested in has been a success, except for one. I don't want to name it. It's near my hometown. But universally, they've been a success. We're here now in uh, 2020. It's time for us to do something bold again, to do something new again. And we're going to have a lot of money coming. The stimulus will come. Philippe, it's going to happen in Europe. It's going to happen in the rest of the world. I, I really hope that through podcasts like this, uh, through leadership, Philippe, that, that Uniface shows a messaging that we get out, that we'll be able to better serve our people who, when rail is built, tend to choose it, give them the opportunity to have it to serve them for, for generations to come. So let's hope if we meet in uh, six months from now, the, all the recovery plans uh, will be already flying and uh, things will go in the right direction. But let's let's be optimistic, and I am optimistic. Yes, let's all be optimistic. And on that note, Philippe, thank you. Thank you for thank you, making time for this. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insight from Europe. And of course, Scott, I'm always thrilled to have an opportunity to hear from you. And I learn so much every time we talk. So I do appreciate you carving out your morning for this conversation. And until next time, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us for Commuter Rail Conversations. We want to extend our gratitude once again to Philippe and Scott for sharing their expertise, insight, and predictions for the year of rail. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes, where we will be interviewing industry leaders representing all facets of commuter rail. See you then.